Hello. Before we start, just to say that this episode of The Take was recorded before the announcement of the death of the Queen. Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day, really? and I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff? Well, it certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Hello? Not mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without mayo. Do you do fancy dress? No. So if someone invites you to a fancy dress party, do you instantly oh. go, great, that's going to be really fun? Or do you think, I think I might be busy? I went to a fancy dress party as the Proclaimers. And uh, okay. all I did was I just went as my, myself, but I think I put a bit, of, I think I put on like a tartan cummerbund or something because... You know, <laughs> no, I know, I know. No, There's something you won't have worn there's, since. No, exactly. But they, but that was like, okay, fine. You know, that's that's it. I've done my bit now. Specky guy with a fifties haircut. So cosplay is not a thing in my. Do you think it could be? If I'm worried where this is going, well, I, I cosplayed as James Dean for most of my life, but it just never. Well, you know, we no have our, our biggest live show ever. Oh, yes, coming up at Halloween. At the end of October, Terrifically yes. exciting. Obviously, where Halloween is obviously at the end of October. Yeah. So this is the Indigo at the O2 in London. Yes. Um, and I just think, so we should probably wear costumes, do you think? No. Oh. What, it, hang on, what, what, if you were going to, what yes. would you cosplay as? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, th I, we encourage people coming to cosplay. I mean, there was loads of cosplay at Fright Fest. It was well, fantastic. That. Well, what yeah. kind of thing did they wear? Well, you know, p people dressed up as you know Michael Myers, or they dressed up as Jason, or they dressed up as if somebody was there as Reagan McNeil. You know, there were some really good costumes. If you dress up as Jason Isaacs, how, what does that look like? <laughs> just, just super suave. Yeah, just super handsome, super super buff, super handsome. The kind of vampires and the monsters and uh, I didn't see any monsters. Sound. There were definitely vampires. There was a lot of um, you know, it was just ghoulishness, but a good ghoulishness. So yes, but we encouraged. But I don't know whether it would take. Would it not undermine? our authority if we yes. were dressed as like if you were Batman and I was Robin that's true should we do that should we do Batman and Robin that's, but that's not Halloween well alright then well is so, that, I'll do Father Merrin and you do Reagan no this is because we're doing our, what's called our first annual Halloween bash which kind of it can't be annual if it's 
the first. first well, it, it, it's, it's rather presumptuous it to assume presumptuous. that it will happen again. Uh, so it's, there's going to be the normal show. We'll have a bunch of spooky guests. Excellent. Uh, Halloween cosplay competition. This is where, obviously, we'll be judging. Now, either we're going to be super dapper and just look fantastic, mm -hmm. just to mark us out as different, mm -hmm. or we'll be in horrendous costumes provided by our production company. Well, I, if we're going to do cosplay, I am going to come as Father Karras, which will basically just involve me wearing the black suit that I always wear, but with the dog collar. Okay. I'm not quite sure what to... Um, you could come as Father Mary and I could come as Father Karras. It's just dark suit. Could I come as Father Karras. Ted? You could come as Father Ted if that, if you'd like to. Random, yes. random priest. Uh, anyway, there'll probably be a quiz because that always fills a bit of time, doesn't it? Random priest as opposed to Randy priest, which was no, those two. No, what was the you know, uh, flea bag? Oh, here, sexy yes. priest. Can we get Andrew Scott? Can ask. I'm sure he's not busy. Andrew Scott uh, will be mentioned later on in this particular. Uh, episode. Anyway, so there's going to be lots of All Hallows Eve fun and uh, you might want to know where people can get tickets, Mark. Simon, where can people get tickets, Mark? You go to kermodemayo.com. That's where you go to and all the details are there and it would be great to see whether you're cosplaying or not cosplaying. It's our biggest live show of all time. It's the first annual Halloween bash at the O2 in London. kermodemayo.com. I saw... Georgie Fame play last night uh, at Ronnie Scott's, and he was fabulous. And he told a story about a musician, a very famous musician, having a conversation with a less famous musician. And the less famous musician said to the famous musician, when was the last time we played together? And the famous musician said, tonight. <laughs> very good. And was so Georgie Fame going through all the hits? He was, yeah. He started off with, yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Did he do uh, the Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde? He did. Really? I'm not, yes, he did. That's fantastic. He literally played all the hits. You would imagine that. Did he do Rosetta? Are you better? Are you well, well, well with Alan Price? I love no, that song. No, no, but Zoot Money came on in the middle of the set. He could have done the Alan Price bit. <laughs> no, exactly. Anyway, uh, what's on the show uh, today? You don't have to cosplay for today. But I'm going to be reviewing uh, See How They Run, uh, Bodies, 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 which is written here as Bodie, Bodies, Bodies, uh, Crimes of the Future, and The Score, which brings us to our special guest. Yes, which is the always interesting Johnny Flynn. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with him. He is one of the stars. He's the executive producer and the provider of the music, music uh, for the score. And as if that wasn't enough. Oh, yes, as if that wasn't <laughs> enough. On Monday... It's on the script. Oh, yeah. Read the piece of paper. On Monday for the Vanguard, there'll be uh, another extra take, uh, which will be expanding your viewing in our feature One Frame Back, inspired by Bodies. And bodies, bodies. We've been asking you for your uh, weekend away movies on our social channels. Lots to choose from, would you say, on that? Uh, lots to choose from. Uh, like what, for example? Like lots. Okay, lots. Excellent. <laughs> uh, take it or leave it. You decide our word of mouth on a podcast feature. Mark's going to be talking about Ozark. Ozark. Send your suggestions for great streaming stuff uh, that we might have missed to correspondence at kermanamayo.com. Just anything that you think is super buzzy and exciting, which... Super buzzy, is it? Yeah, either we should be talking about it or you just think everyone needs to know about it because there's so much stuff out there. Uh, let us know. Correspondence at kermanameo.com. Please sign up for, uh, to our premium value extra takes to dig into all that stuff. You can access all the extra stuff through Apple Podcasts or if one prefers a different platform, then one should head to extratakes.com. I like the use of one if one prefers a different platform. Yes. And if you're already a Vanguardista, one should do as this. always... Thank you for subscribing. Um, here's a thing. 
good jokes, by the way, coming up later. Excellent. Are they written by you or by your child? No, 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 no. Well, I, I have one uh, written by Child 3, but mainly they're all provided by the Vanguard. Oh, okay. Uh, so the, the audience are now providing the jokes. Yeah, well, you'll see, wow. you'll see why. Uh, Steve Batchelor, Dear Evita and Little Dinosaur. Uh, LTL and FTE in reference to Mark's query about the difference between a ship and a boat yes I yes, think yes, I may yes. have the answer okay a ship uh, can I just say I said a boat can go on a ship but a ship can't go on a boat this is much better a ship is a big floaty thing with lots of people on it whereas a boat is something built in a Nicholas Sparks film <laughs> I hope that right. helps yes you don't get a sad man sanding down a, a ship it has to be sending down a boat. He says, I hope that helps. Down with the Nazis and ridiculously lengthy leadership contests. That's very good. Also, um, a ship is a big floaty thing with lots of people in it, whereas a boat is something built at the end of Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> he's not building a boat at the end of Shawshank well, Redemption. He's sanding it down. Sanding it down. Sanding it down. It's, that's, that's the tradition. It's, that's you know, it's the thoughtful older gentleman sanding down a boat. John Penny, uh, dear Mal and Demare, I enjoyed your conversation about seasickness mm-hmm. and agree that it can be absolutely terrible. I have heard it said that if you have bad seasickness, you start to fear that you'll die. But if it's really bad, you start to fear that you won't. <laughs> That's very good. Anyway, help is at hand. My cousin, who runs the lifeboat in the Isles of Scilly, very good, told me of a fail-safe cure. Okay, all you have to do to cure seasickness is to sit under a tree. <laughs> Tickety-tonk and the down Ar- with all things that should stay The down. Isles of Scilly are, of course, the, the kind of Naples ultra of seasickness because the Salonian is a flat-bottom boat in order to get in between Was that the, a song by Queen? What, flat-bottom boat? Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. Um, in order to get into the shallow waters around, you know, the archipelago. So if you go over on the Salonian and, and the and the crossing is flat, that's fine. Yeah. But if you go over and it's a, it's it's a little bit lively, a little bit leery, seasickness can result in absolutely staggering quantities. It is a a very very floaty boat with a very flat bottom, and apparently is very. We went once, we flew over because I haven't haven't done the Salonian, and um uh. We went into the the office because I'd, I'd forgotten, so I'd left something. I had to pick it up, and somebody was in front of us and said, "I was in the navy for twenty years, and I'm not going back on the Salonian." Really? Okay. <laughs> because they'd been hit by you the seasickness. Uh, dear Port and Starboard, uh, for a long time now, says Aaron, I've uh, listened to your film and non-film-based witterings. I consider myself very much part of the coterie of the Church of Witter. Do we still call it that, even though we're in the new world? Anyway, yes, we do. And uh, we recognise most of the long-running in-jokes and gnomic references. However, there is one element of your witterings by which I'm genuinely perplexed. Okay. Do you both go on a month-long cruise? Yes. When it gets to August and you both sail off wherever it is you go, I initially thought the comments about going on a cruise were simply a joke. No. However... In true British fashion, your comments on the matter are so dry. I cannot work out whether you're joking they're not about dry, going they're just on a factually true. Or whether you're actually t- sailing the seas on earth. I was going to Google, do Mark and Simon actually go on a cruise, but didn't want Google to see that I had searched for this <laughs> and clearly have too much time on my hands that is evidently not being well spent. Adding to my confusion on the subject, at the end of the recent pod, you even had boat noises in the background. Are they on a boat? I thought to myself, <laughs> they can't be, can they? Just like the best movies, I can no longer tell what is real and what is note. I haven't missed the boat on this one. Yeah. No, we, we do go on a cruise. We kind of exaggerate sometimes about, you know, Spandau Ballet weren't actually on the cruise. That was a, it was a Spandau Ballet tribute act. Yeah. 
and and tribute was paid, but yes. but but the cruise is a real thing. But we did have Duran Duran, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, Aaron, thank you very much indeed. Now, um, correspondence at kerbinamay.com, yeah. by the way. More cures of seasickness, that would be good. But you want plenty of time to talk about our next movie, and I am now offering you plenty, plenty of, of time. time. Crimes of the Future, which is the new film by David Cronenberg, of whom I'm a huge fan, as you know, premiered at Cannes in May. Um, shares a title with an experimental sort of underground film that he made in 1970. If you're a Cronenberg fan, Stereo and Crimes of the Future are the kind of, you know, the early ones before the, the, the features kick in. This isn't a remake of that film, though it shares the title with it, although it is very much a throwback to the body horror films with which Cronenberg sort of made his name Shivers, Rabid, Videodrum, Brood, you know. And um, all what those films did was they used the mutations of the flesh as physical metaphors for matter of life and death. I'm going to play you a brief clip in which anyone who's familiar with Cronenberg's oof will know that this is kind of, this is... Is it like, gory? No, it's not gory, It's the, but it's, it's, it's long live the new flesh, old-fashioned Cronenberg. Here we go. Caprice. You have no idea how hard it's been for me to find plastic surgeons who understand that I do not wish to be made more beautiful. Surgeons tend to be very focused and unimaginative. It's considered a strength. I was a surgeon myself. A cosmetic surgery, though. Trauma. Trauma. But that's very provocative. So this is set in the near future. Uh, the human body is in revolt due to accelerated evolution syndrome. Viggo Mortensen, who, of course, has been in you know, History of Violence, uh, Eastern Promises, is Saul Tenser, who's a performance artist whose body is consistently producing new organs, organs which are then removed publicly as part of the theatre of surgery. Incidentally, that's why you know, medical theatres are called theatres because they were originally you know, on display, okay. uh, played by Leah Sadu, um, and she removes the organs, which incidentally she tattoos in situ as they are growing because they have to be registered by the National Organ Registry, which is trying to keep track of anarchic human development. The registry is still a fairly modest affair, but working at it is a character played by uh, uh, Kristen uh, Stewart, who's called Tim Lim, who becomes clearly aroused by what's happening with the uh, with the performance art, and who says at one point, um, "Surgery is sex, isn't it? Surgery is the new sex," which is a very very sort of Cronenbergian thing. Meanwhile, there is a a sort of uh, a parallel plot: a young boy who we meet at the very beginning of the film eating plastic becomes the centre of this whole other plot, which will kind of lead them into uncharted territory. We meet a radical um, called Lang who says, it's time for human evolution to sync up with human technology. We've got to start feeding on our own industrial waste. Now, Cronenberg has said, and I quote, fans will see key references to other scenes and many uh, and moments from my other films. And he's not kidding. So there's the... If you're familiar with Dead Ringers, there's the conversation about, you know, I want to have beauty contests for the insides of bodies. Not, that, the, not the Radio 4 comedy quiz. No, Dead Ringers, the David Cronenberg right. movie, yes. Well done for distinguishing between the two because a listener could have been confused have been, otherwise. One could have sued the other. So that absolutely kind of resurfaces here. The sort of long live the new flesh mantras of Videodrome are, 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 are reworked. The stories about, um, you know, human 
bodily eruptions and viruses just being part of a natural process, these all kind of, uh, you know, wave their heads again. And as somebody who grew up loving that sort of Cronenberg canon of body horror, which he sort of moved away from in the wake of Dead Ringers, then he moved into stuff that was more psychological, um, really from crash onwards, although there was things like Existence, which was a kind of, you know, a sort of partial return to genre. This feels like okay, this is an old, old-style Cronenberg movie. The problem, I think, is, firstly, it's nice to revisit that stuff, but it is a step backwards. It's not a, an evolutionary leap forwards. The second thing is, it's not one of the great... I mean, this it's a footnote to Cronenberg's uh, body of work as opposed to, you know, a new evolutionary development. There are some fundamental flaws in it. I mean, there are weird moments of kind of softcore sexiness that look like they should have come from a Roger Corman video from the 1980s. There are some oddly ill-fitting comedic elements. Kristen Stewart, who I absolutely love, and I know you do too, delivers what I think is her first misjudged performance, which is kind of teetering on the brink of somebody doing a parody of her breathless staccato, you know, when people do, and, and it's kind of like, okay, well, I understand that maybe this is meant to be sort of ironic or, or sardonic. On the other hand, Viggo Mortensen is terrific. Les Sadu is terrific. The design is classic kind of, you know, there are these beds and chairs and sarcophaguses that all kind of have a genetic connection to the mugwumps of, uh, of Naked Lunch. But it feels like a step backwards. Now, I have seen some uh, some people talking about it and talking about the ideas in it that are kind of, you know, saying it's got these brilliant ideas of this and that and the other, as if those ideas weren't explored before many decades ago. Here's the thing. If anyone is going to do a tribute act to David Cronenberg, it might as well be David Cronenberg. And I, there are things in Crimes of the Future that I like because I liked those films the first time round. But it does feel like if you, if you were somebody who was there through Rabid, Scanners, The Brood, Videodrome, The Fly, it's like, yeah, okay, I did like those films. And Existence already felt like, let's go back to Videodrome and give it a proper ending. And this now feels like, I mean, this script, incidentally, is based on a script that's that's quite old anyway. But this feels like somebody going, okay, I'm going to play the hits. You know, it's like, you know, when, a, when you know, I, you don't want to hear my new album, here's the hits. And it's fine. It's not provocative in the way that Crash is. It kind of felt oddly safe to me. I mean, I liked it enough because I like Cronenberg. But if you know and love Cronenberg, you've seen this all before. Uh, still to come on this very, very entertaining pod. Uh, reviews of bodies, bodies, bodies. More bodies. Um, see how they run. And our special guest. Johnny Flynn, uh, star of The Score, or one of the stars. Certainly you'll hear from him in just a moment. Time for the ads. Very exciting. Unless you're in the vanguard, in which case we'll be back before you can say extra takes. Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day, really? and I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, 
all that bad stuff. It certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Hello? Not Mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without Mayo. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. Such as? Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming on movie in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so. would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again. This is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech-savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. <laughs> Welcome back. Unless, of course, you you weren't away in the first place. In which case, this is just a continuation. Uh, Last week, we asked you for your highfalutin jokes. Highfalutin, Um, rootin' tootin'? Yes. 
because I had the uh, top joke from The Economist about the French Constitution. That's right. Uh, you remind me again. Man walks into a library, says, I'd like a copy of the French Constitution. Library says... Sorry, sir, we don't do periodicals. Ba-bum. Because they change it yeah. so regularly. Uh, if you're an Economist subscriber, that was perhaps the you know better than anything on the Edinburgh Fringe. And uh, certainly when we do our Hollywood show, when we do our Hollywood show, when we do our <laughs> Halloween show, sorry. Well, it, well, you never know. That's right. We should certainly have a whole raft of laughter lift, because Hall- there are so many Halloween jokes. There are so many. We will... We should get you all lined up, and then you can come up to the microphone. And you can tell a Halloween. Joke. Why didn't the ghost go to the party? I don't know. Why didn't? The, why? Why? Because he had no body to go with. There you go. So it's that See, kind just, of thing. That kind of comedy here's, gold. Here's a little taster, though, of the highfalutin tootin jokes that you've been sending in. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Steve Rowland, BSc, PGCE, ex-physics teacher, ex-rocket scientist, currently out and proud PowerPoint nerd. Isn't BSG a vaccination? Oh, no, that's BCG, sorry. No, he's a BSc. BSc, fine. Bachelor Bachelor of Science. Science. Heritage listener, second time emailer. Imagine my joy after chuckling at the French Constitution joke, you see. (laughs) When you ask for highfalutin jokes, my main claim to fame is that I sent you this very joke. No, I sent this very joke to Jeremy Paxman when he used to send a daily Newsnight email out and he used it the next day. Now, so this is... A 20-year-old joke. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Now, this is around 20 years ago, before podcasts were really a thing, so I reckon the statute of limitations on reuse has expired, and I have been waiting for another opportunity to use this ever since. Okay. I would genuinely like to know, for next week, if anybody actually laughs when I get to the punchline. Okay. Will I, or will I not understand it? Well, let's find let's out. Find I don't out. want to prejudge. Let's find out, okay. Here's the joke, possibly only funny to those with physics-based degrees. Okay. Renowned German theoretical physicist Werner Heisenberg, real person, okay. was driving hell for leather down the motorway when he heard sirens. Looking in the rearview mirror, he saw the flashing lights of a police car signalling him to pull over. He stopped the car and the police officer pulled out behind him and stepped out of the patrol vehicle. Here you may wish to, as I always do, imagine the ill-fated cop in Thelma and Louise. (laughs) The police officer motioned to Heisenberg to roll down his window. Can I help you, officer? (laughs) That's very good. You're doing all the voices. Inquired Heisenberg. Do you know how fast you were driving? Replied the police officer rather sternly. No, said Heisenberg, but I know where I am. Here's the explanation. <laughs> Heisenberg introduced the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics in 1927. To boil it down, it states that for very small particles, such as electrons, you can never know both the speed and the position of a particle at the same time. If you measure one, then the other is somewhere in a statistical range of values. It is because small particles behave both as objects and waves, but it's probably best left there. And it's amazing that Heisenberg then turned up in Breaking Bad, which we'll be talking about next week. Incredible. I, my guess is that even the economists would go, I don't know, that's a little bit, a little bit high end for us. <laughs> I wasn't even sure that that was the punchline. Well, exactly. That's, exactly. that's the thing. But if you have a physics-based degree, that was possibly the funniest thing you've heard okay. for 20 so years. So if you actually laughed... In that gap. Please... Let us know. Genuinely. Yes. Don't make it up. Not, not for self-aggrandizement. Exactly. It only let us know if you actually laughed. Yes, and if you can top the joke. Correspondence at codamayor.com. Box office top 10. Yes. At 24. Blackbird. <laughs> 
Um, right. Are you going to say any emails? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is from uh, Tom. Yes. Hello. We immediately ignored Mark's advice and went to see Michael Flatley's Blackbird at London's Prince Charles Cinema. Yes. Perhaps most striking was what wasn't there. For an action thriller, there was almost no action. <laughs> One critical battle was entirely off camera and conveyed only by sound effects. In another scene, exactly as Michael Flatley's character... Victor Blackley, you see what he did there, and sidekick drew their pistols, there was an inexplicable cut to the next scene. The only scene in which Michael did some running and shooting was in a flashback. And this was so fleeting and dark, it was hard to make out, despite the same segment being shown a fair few times. I assume that a crack team of editors cut around anything that involved Michael moving very much. <laughs> Ironic, given that he's famous for an art form pretty much defined by movement, at least of the legs. Despite this, with dialogue-like sidekick, they have a toxin that could wipe out whole villages, towns or cities. Exactly. Blackly. What's your point? It was pretty unmissable. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. And someone who, uh, via our YouTube channel, uh, calls themselves White Sepulchre 13. Thank you, uh, Mr. 13. I went to see this movie yesterday. I had to walk out. 30 minutes in. Never walked out of a movie before. It was torture. It's not even worth going to see it for a laugh. If you want the fog of depression to engulf you, to lose the will to live, then go for it. It's been over 24 hours since I saw Blackbird and I'm feeling so low. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. There you go. That's the whole thing is so many people saying, let's go and see it for a laugh. Yes. Well, if you remember, our, the review that we did ended with you saying, Shall, you know, is it worth it for a laugh? And I said, no. Yes. And I wasn't kidding. Um, that's why people have been talking about, you know, the Prince Charles having it as the new room by Tommy Wiseau. What I would like to say is this, like um, some, you know, um, once I get the bit between my teeth about something, I tend to not let it go. It's true. I was astonished to find that Michael Flatley had won an award for this film, which he financed, wrote, directed, produced, and starred in as, as I said, not so much a vanity project as an insanity project. He won Best Actor at the Monaco Streaming Film Festival in 2021. Right. So I tweeted them to say... The Monaco Streaming Festival. The Monaco Streaming Festival um, uh, to say, can you tell me who else was in competition? They didn't get back to me. I tweeted them a couple of times, didn't get back to me. Then I emailed them. And on the second email, I did indeed get an answer. And they said, um, why do you want to know? And I said, because obviously context is everything. Uh, and I want to know, you know, who the other people were that yes. Michael Flatley beat because I'm genuinely interested. And I've had an email back from them said, uh, thank you for your email. We'll provide you with the full information shortly as we have to go back into the 2021 archives. The archives from, 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 last, from year. last year. So, um, that, that, I mean, that could obviously take quite a long time. Yes, but they will provide me with the full information yeah. shortly. And I'm very grateful to them for replying because I am genuinely, genuinely uh, interested to know who Michael Flatley beat since he won. If yes. you, to win something, you have to be better than somebody Correct. else, okay? So because I genuinely can't imagine a worse performance Imagine than the performance losing two, yes. Yeah, exactly. Like when, when Adam Sandler won the uh, Independent Film Festival Best Actor Award, he said, I'd like to thank all my fellow nominees who will forever be remembered as the people who lost to Adam Sandler. I would like to know who Michael Flatley's performance was yes. considered better than. And as soon as I know, I will let you know, but I, but the, the festival have replied to my inquiry and I'm very grateful for the reply. And I look forward to to finding out who else was in competition because I'm, I'm at a loss. If you, presumably, 
there were other people at the Monaco streaming festival. Maybe, maybe 2021. People, 2021. Maybe you watched it. Maybe you were there. Maybe you were a part of it. If if you witnessed this this event, we would like to know. Yeah, just because I'm genuinely, genuinely baffled genuinely. and interested to know how a performance as and you know, let's make no bones about this, spectacularly dismal as the one that Michael Flatley delivers in the film that he financed, wrote, produced yes. and directed, can have won anything. But then I'm a critic, what do I know? If you were a part of this uh, streaming festival... Uh, Which would, I'm sure is a is a very fine thing. Very fine thing. And people had a good time. We would like to hear from you. Just get in touch. Correspondence at Konamo.com. Thank you. Rebecca says, I went to see Michael Flatley's James Bond-esque vanity project Blackbird on opening night, the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin. Not only was it one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but it was also the best experience I've ever had in the <laughs> cinema. From start to finish, the crowd were in absolute stitches. They whooped, cheered and laughed their way through the entire thing. Yes, the story is terrible with every possible spy movie cliche shoved into it and the script is hilarious for all the wrong reasons, but it's a clear-cut case of a movie so bad it's good. A packed screen is what you need to enjoy Blackbird. There was even a drinking game to go along with it. So that was a truly awful movie. I had more fun watching Blackbird compared to most comedies. It's unintentionally hilarious. In the um, in the drinking game, and I've got the card for it, you... you, uh, you Drink or dance every time he has a new hat. Uh, when he changes his hat on screen, you down your drink. Every time he says Blackbird, Chieftains or Slick, then you dance. Superfluous Gaelic, then you can do both. Ominous tracking shot, drink. Every time there's a flashback, drink. When an outrageously hot woman hits on him or checks him out, drink. A weird cutaway in the middle or very... Uh, a very different set piece, drink, let's dance, down your drink, and so on. And you can imagine that if you're taking part in the Victor Blackley challenge, uh, you would have a much better time than you did just sitting in the yeah. theatre. Can I tell you the best way to see Blackbird? Don't. OK, thank you very much. Correspondence at KermanAmeo.com. Uh, back to the chart, yes. then. I mean, clearly that's charted at 24. Well, wow. In with a bullet. In with a bullet. Um... Number 15, The Forgiven. Which, <laughs> some yes, so some solid performances. Ray Fiennes is pretty good. Jessica Chastain is pretty good. It just felt, it felt like a slightly inert adaptation to me. It's, it's a solid but unremarkable adaptation of an interesting but not necessarily particularly cinematic story. Jonathan Melia says, anyone moaning about how this is just a modish attack on white privilege should read E.M. Forster's 1905 novel, Where Angels Fear to Tread. Are people moaning about that? Which has a similar idea. No idea, but Jonathan okay. has obviously heard people okay. doing that. Andrew Balshaw, best thriller I've seen for a while. Love the ending and the fact there's no musical credits. Seems to pack much more of a punch that way. Love the joke with the Dalek toy. I thought that Matt Smith actually gave the best performance. Fines was great, but a bit too stilted, I thought, and Chastain's character was a bit Cliche. So very quickly, something on the subject of that, all the credits at the beginning of the film, so it ends and it just ends, and that used to be how films yes. worked. If you look at classic Hollywood, that's and it's lovely to see a film that just ends. The thing happens and then it ends, yes. and it is a good ending. And very rarely yeah. does that happen. Uh, number 10 in the UK, 12 in America, uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. Feels like something you should be reading or listening to as an audio book, but definitely not watching. It is a very, very flawed film. Ashima from Lausanne in Switzerland. I went to watch 
3,000 Years of Longing this week. Basically, I loved it. And as a Mad Max Fury Road superfan, I was happy to see that George Miller and his team did the thing that I loved them for yet again, which is utilise all the tools that modern filmmaking has to offer to weave stories that one cannot help but get drawn into. I loved it. It was simple and complex at the same time. And the music Solomon played for Sheba will not leave me anytime soon. The music of the film, which is it's Junkie XL. It's a Junkie XL score. And the score album is absolutely brilliant. And interestingly, Ashima says, I didn't listen to your old podcast, so I don't know what to do with the thing, etc. Okay. Down with, whatever. <laughs> okay. Well, you can do, yeah. you can, Ashima, you can do with it what you want, yeah. really. Down with the Nazis, that's the thing. Yeah, that was, which is, for Ashima and the new arrivals, it's the, the, the late Queen Mother. Yes who signed off during the war, who signed off her letters, genuinely, tickety-tong, gold fruit, and and down with the Nazis, Nazis, which seemed to catch people's imagination. And so that's why we've been, we've been doing it in honour of the Queen Mother. We have. Uh, And a good laugh. Thank you, Ashima. Um, Someone, if you're on the YouTube channel, you can't be called Bob or Dave or Samantha. Okay. H. Poonis, 2010, on our YouTube do we call him H or her? I don't know. Further to Mark's analysis of the video story being distracted by CGI, yes. what I will say is, had this been a movie made 30 years ago, there would have been more emphasis in the story as any effects would have been harder to create. Precisely so. This is probably an endemic problem inherent in all modern films which utilises CGI. Just because you can doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you, you should. should. There you go. Very good. That's 3,000 years of longing at number 10. Number 9 in the UK. Number 6 here is Beast. Which is uh, Idris Elba and, uh, you know, big beastie thing. I said to you, I'm going to go and see it over the weekend. I, I didn't. You lied. I lied. And uh, number eight here, number 14 in the States is Elvis. Which I could happily go and see again at any time. Um, your child, too, went to see it twice on the trot. I'm delighted that it's still in there now in week 11. Uh, number seven in the UK, ET, 40th anniversary. Here's a, here's a nice email from Lee Cooper. I have just watched uh, E.T. for the first time, Ebbs, on the big screen, and forgive me for the lack of suspenseful build-up to my conclusion, but it's a melon-farming five-star knockout of a film. Not only is it It still a delight, but it's a fantastic cinematic experience. Fears that the film would not be as remembered, that it may be a warped memory through rose-tinted nostalgia goggles, were instantaneously obliterated. Even in the technical aspects, it was not as dated as expected. Only really noticeable detractions on the ship and flying effects and in the wardrobe department. Even the lack of modern technology is only really apparent in the scenes where the TV is on. Sharing the experience with my seven-year-old, watching for the very first time ever, made the experience so much more enjoyable. Her absolute heartbreak and floods of tears during that scene, which helped me mask my own blubbing, a cultural touchstone for people my age, and her joy during the subsequent bike chase leading to the finale, felt like witnessing a real turning point in her film viewing evolution. The emotional battering she endured, making her feel much more invested in the film's resolution. Upon quizzing over a burger afterwards, my daughter declared the famous scene was her famous part of the was her favorite part of the film. And although she struggled to articulate exactly why this was, 
I know that sounds strange, Daddy, she said. I understood and marvelled as a little piece of her emotional maturity clicked into place before my very eyes, thanks to Spielberg's wonderful tale. It really is a perfect story, brilliantly told. Here's to the next 40 years. Love the show, Steve, from Lee Cooper. If you haven't done so, check out the Henry Thomas audition tape (laughs) for E.T. You've seen it, right? Which is absolutely... You know, which ends with Spielberg going, you know, you, you, got, you got the job, kid. It's, the it's job, almost kid. so Hollywood, you think it can't have happened like that, but it did. But it's brilliant. And it is, it, it, you know, the thing that Spielberg managed to do was to create on set the sense that what was happening was really happening. And just check out the Henry. So you can find it. Just Google it. It's just wonderful. It did make me think, again... Not saying anything earth-shattering at all. What a genius Spielberg is, and we've had, is. we've been fortunate enough to interview him a couple of times on uh, on the program. Yeah. But you go back to watch something which is forty years old, and a lot of movies that are forty years old. And Jaws is bit, back in cinemas. This a little week. bit clunky, but you think what? A, I know, just a genius storyteller. It's just yeah, it's it's pretty much perfect. Uh, number six in the UK, number eleven in America is Nope. I'm divided about it. I think it has lots of good ideas, but I think it is structurally um, a mess. I think it is Jordan Peele's weakest film, although I think Daniel Kaluuya's performance is wonderful. Number five here, number three in America, Spider-Man No Way Home. You know, reissued so fast. And, uh, I mean, it's... Do you remember there used to be those things, you know, I I remember the 80s or I love the 90s, and then the last one was, I. you know, I love yesterday. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like that. And... Collins and McConey would always turn up in various that's on, right, on all yes, of them. Because they're great. They would, Andrew Collins, right. Jim McConey were just great. <laughs> Point the camera, they could they could give you a great anecdote yeah. on all of that. Uh, number four in the UK, number two in America is Bullet Train. Bullet Train, yeah. It's just you know, they just take the basic principle and which is, you know, musical chairs at high speed and then they mess it up. It starts as a guy Ritchie film and goes downhill from there. Uh, the American number one which is incredible. Number three here still, Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick! I mean, that seems like ages ago. When we did that whole thing in the Union Chapel in uh, Islington in London for our first um, outside broadcast adventure, we did the whole Top Gun Maverick, and here we are many months later. Still going, Top Gun Maverick! Number one in America, three here. Uh, Two in the UK, DC League of Super Pets. (laughs) And number one in the UK, number seven in America, Minions, The Rise of Gru. We had an email last week from somebody saying, can we be honest, Minions Rise of Gru um, wasn't funny. Yes, it was. <laughs> At least it was funny all the time Minions were on screen. The Rise of Gru I was less interested in. Yeah. But but, but, it's a, but it's a huge big deal, and there it is um, at number one. Uh, now, our guest today is singer, songwriter and actor, stars alongside Will Poulter in The Score. You'll hear my interview with him in just a moment after this clip from the film, uh, which is Johnny singing, because it's a it's it's a musical. Uh, there is speech as well. You'll hear all the details in just a moment. But here's Johnny singing on the track Hard Road. Hard road under the night sky Keep on travelling Fare thee well, my love Hard road under the night sky Keep on traveling, fare thee well.
And that's a clip from the score, singing from executive producer and composer and one of its stars, Johnny Flynn. Hello, Johnny. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm just looking at the room you're speaking to us in. That looks a fairly spectacular gym or art gallery. I can't quite make it out. <laughs> we live in a house with a weird old stable building at the back, which we bought separately. And this has become a kind of flexi space, basically. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, it's a, yeah, good, it, it's a good space. It, it's nice to talk to you again. So the score is, is your new movie. Described as, I don't know, crime thriller slash musical. What words would you use or a heist musical, I don't know, how would you describe it? You know, the first thing, the first encounter I had with it was the, was the script and, you know, didn't, didn't know that Maliki had the idea of inserting my songs in it until, until I was reading it. And it's like page two, the characters are singing one of my songs, which is a, a, a pleasant surprise, but definitely a surprise. I like films with heightened dialogue, slightly surreal dialogue, there was a sort of poetry to it that I felt was almost like a, the kind of plays that I like. So I was drawn to it in, in through the language, through Malachi's language. So I guess I, I just thought of it as this quite sort of poetic uh, exploration of a very vague uh, place and time and, and, and these things and these characters that slowly emerge, they kind of come out of the, the murk, you know, and, and, you, and you slowly get a sense of them and they're not what they seem at first. And the songs allow for that you know in the soup of that that confusion they they kind of you get a very surreal and abstract sense of these characters but you it, i feel like they, they do come out they do come clear in the end but it comes out of a real abstraction so i guess that's the way i thought of it and i yes. find it hard to to categorize it new york times came up with the phrase small scale existentialist musical yeah, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so the Maliki you're talking about is, is the writer and director Maliki Smith. So did you know him? Did what? What is your yeah. relationship with him? Because this is his, his first feature, isn't it? First feature. He's written a lot of screenplays before, and that's how I met him. I did a reading of a screenplay of his that I really enjoyed. That Ben Pullen, who's one of the key producers, he of our film, he had introduced me to Maliki and got me in for a reading years ago. And I'd worked for Ben as a composer on a short film that he was making so that's how I knew them and for basically for years I'd bump into Ben and he'd say we've got to make a musical and I was like I don't think I like musicals but it was Ben that took me for coffee and gave me the script and was like this is the musical you know and it was kind of I, I, I say I don't like I do like classic musicals but I've, I've had trouble enjoying a lot of recent musicals the kind of band some of the band biopic uh, stage musicals I find a bit difficult and so yeah th I always wanted to play with the form and and I had half thought oh I'd like to do you know I'd like to write something from scratch basically and so it was a, a, a little bit put out that somebody had basically done it using my songs and then I thought well it, it'll take ages for me to get around to doing that so I might as well collaborate with, with these guys. Anyone who's listened to your music over the years Johnny knows that your music could not be described as cabaret or 42nd street particularly so no how would you do, how would how would you describe the musical tone of of the film? Most of the songs are old songs of mine, which appear on you know records that we put out over the last you know eleven twelve years. I think the first one came out in two thousand and eight. So and the songs were written you know sometimes earlier than that. So they're really old songs for me. I really know how they sound when we play them as a band, and it was really interesting to go okay how can I 
you know, retreat them, reimagine them for this uh, new story and setting and, and also give them to these actors to sing. And, you know, so completely dissected the way that we play them as a band and tried to change the emphasis, the rhythm, the, the sonic palette. There's a lot more electronic sounds than I usually use with, with my band when we're doing albums. I wanted a kind of an unplaceable... I didn't want it, you to go, oh, that's like folk rock or Americana or something. I want it to be quite unplaceable, kind of let the classicness of the songs shine out without being able to be pigeonholed and and something quite modern but something quite ancient as well the kind of tribal rhythms and things like that so yeah so there's something unplaceable basically that's quite a lot of i don't know retooling that you had to do to your songs yeah and that was for me that was the fun challenge because i i looked at it as a chance to to do something really fresh with these old old songs i worked with some of the musicians that recorded them originally uh adam beach and joe zeitlin who were friends who play in the band who played played with for like 15 nearly 20 years and we just completely ripped them up basically ripped up the, the songs that we knew and and started afresh and and you know used different instruments kind of had a different starting point and worked quite it was it was so fun collaborating, re, you know, reimagining them with with these guys that had done them years ago, and trying to forget what we knew of the songs, and then have Will and Naomi come into a studio and kind of coach them into the songs because we had to do that, of course, before we filmed the film. We didn't have the it wasn't like a lame is budget. We didn't we couldn't do live music on on the day, so we had to pre-record them and then lip sync. So this, the music came first for me, and that was a lot of work songs and then afterwards i did this sort of the score of the score which is um was was confusing talking about it at the time so, so the will and naomi you're talking about is will poulter and, and naomi aki had yeah. they done anything like this before had they been in a recording studio had they sung not as far as i know no they, i mean yeah so that was a lovely there was an excitement and a nervousness for them they were very game and and gave themselves to the project which was you know, so heartwarming and and touching and Malachi was there in the studio. And we're trying to also imagine the characters in the songs before we'd filmed anything. So it was it was like it was quite a lot of work in, in the studio over a couple of days with them uh imagining how they had to had to tell their stories. How difficult is lip syncing? There's definitely a technique and you I mean basically you have to play the song really really loud and sing along otherwise the breathing's all wrong and so yeah the best thing is if if the actor is, is really doing it on the day but it's loud enough for you to hear that you're completely in time and you have to do a really hard kind of it's, it's harder than learning lines because you're learning rhythm as well really specific phrasing and things like that and trying to match it but that's you know it's kind of it's a fun challenge it's what our job is it's very technical and so it's another technical thing that i i enjoy just on, on that on that technical side, then you were a decade ago or so with Mark Rylance in Jerusalem. Yeah, um, and I know you've spoken before about what a mentor and what an inspiration Mark Rylance is. And I wonder if Jerusalem. I mean, obviously, it's, it's very, very. It's a different story. But ha would you say it's fair to say it has a similar tone to this movie? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that when I mentioned the kind of plays that I like, that would be in that in that category. You know, that kind of dialogue that is. It's it's real. You you got got to believe the characters and the situation to invest in it. But also, there's heightened poetry that you can hear along alongside that 
that realism. And that play was such a template for a generation. And obviously it's been on again recently, but everyone who saw it, I think was influenced by it. And I think I can definitely see this world that's like rural, murky, somewhere at the end of the world, basically. Yes. Uh, I spoke to Sean Penn, this is a number of years ago. He did a movie with Mark Rylance. And Sean Penn says, you can always tell when you're working with actors who have done theatre. Uh-huh. There is just something different about, I don't know quite what he was getting, whether it be pacing or presence or physicality, I don't know. Do you, th- do you think there's, that's essentially true as someone who loves theatre? I came from theatre and when I started doing movies, I really noticed a lot of great movie actors have done theatre and, and, but then you work with somebody who has an incredible reputation on film and hasn't done any theatre and you realise when it's their coverage, they're not, they're not quite as engaged with you as an actor that, that has come from theatre that's relying on those responses. You turn around and do the coverage over your shoulder and sometimes they're not even looking you in the eye. They're just kind of doing what they have to do for the camera and they're so aware of the camera and that was a shock for me i've got more used to you know because actually it's got to be both you've got to you've got to be super aware of the camera as well but i love working with theater actors on on screen and i got to work with mark uh for the first time mark Rylance on a on a film last year the outfit and it was just amazing because seeing seeing his process that i know really well i did sort of three plays with him in a row um starting with jerusalem 10 years ago and it was such an amazing kind of I felt like it was an acting apprenticeship that, that I really needed and to then come back and see how he employs those those that that wonderful intuition on screen was um was amazing and speaking of notable stage actors and film actors you're working uh, or you maybe you've already finished talented Mr Ripley with Andrew Scott who have who is just incredible uh, on yeah. stage was that a similar process it must have been great working alongside him yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, he's one of my absolute favourite actors, so it was a joy to work with him. And in Ripley as well, with those characters, there's such a kind of crazy dance that they're doing, so it was lovely. Again, you know, I can't imagine doing it with somebody with less of that theatrical sense of collaboration that, that I think does come from years of doing theatre. And so his sense of play with me and, you know, the ability to kind of shift and change and melt around each other in the scenes was just was really delightful when you rapped on the score did you think i'd like to do that again yeah i loved it it was it was a surprise for me you know it, with i think that's why i love making small films because it is like you know it's an incredible it's like an incredible magic trick that you you really don't know if it's gonna come off you know it's like you're putting all these elements so he's very changeable movable elements together performances um you know cameras light weather scenes scenery you know and and then and you just don't know if it's going to come off if your story's going to land and i had most of my stuff with was with will and uh, i loved working with naomi but I, I i had a lot of scenes with will and we had a, a long-standing relationship our characters and i just it's so fun with him. And that, that was what made it for me was yeah. the play that we got to have. We had a lot of laughs and we, we just, we really enjoyed it. Was it talented Mr. Ripley that we see you in next, Johnny? I think so. I've just finished a series called The Lovers, which is for Sky AMC, which was an amazing experience in Belfast. So that might come out because that will be a smaller post-production. That might come out before. And I'm just, yesterday had, 
my first day rehearsing for a film that that I start filming next week called One Life with Anthony Hopkins that where we're sharing a part. Wow. It might be one of those three. Uh, fantastic. Very exciting projects. Johnny, uh, always good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today. You too. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Johnny Flynn uh, talking about his new movie, The Score, uh, which is, as I think you can gather from that, I, I found the whole thing quite hypnotic. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, let's... I'm surprised you didn't make the joke. You said it's a heist musical. You didn't say high school musical. No, I mean, that's, Sorry, what, that that's why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> come up with that. So a wonderful interview with Johnny Flynn, who I think is terrific and who I thought was very engaged. He said that thing about when you're making this kind of movie, you don't know whether it's going to come off. And I have to begin by saying that I think the score doesn't. But... I think there are interesting things happening as it doesn't work. And, you know, I have said this thing many times before. I'd always rather see somebody aim high and trip than just play it safe. That description of it is a small-scale existential uh, musical um, based around songs that, you know, that, that aren't written for the film. I was just reading a, uh, an interview with uh, Malachi Smith in, the, uh, in Film Stories in which he talked about originally writing it as a sort of low-budget film that, you know, he was trying to think of a way of making it something that would stand out, that it wouldn't just be another low-budget British film. And he had a joke with his producer, which was, well, let's make it a musical. And this time he was listening to Johnny Flynn's songs whilst he was doing it and then went, well, actually, why not? And when I was a kid, when I was very young, I had a copy of Shiwadi Wadi's Step 2. And there is a point to this story, which is I listened to that album over and over again. And I ended up writing a story to go round it, because even at the age of 10, I had dreams of making films, because I never ended up doing. Malachi Smith has actually done this. And hats off to him. The story is, you know, these two ne'er-do-wells are... you know, at a cafe with a bag full of money and they are on the point of stepping up to the next level by dealing with professionals. However, the cafe owner or, you know, the person who's serving the cafe starts to develop this relationship with one of them while the other one is cooking something up themselves. I really like Johnny Flynn. I think he is a magnetic screen presence. I loved him um, in the outfit uh, before, which again was a sort of, you know, a, a small scale production. He talked about this as a play, and actually, I do think it has the it has the feel of a play about it. Even though I know it was it was always intended uh, uh, as a film. Will Poulter, you know, I'm all right, Lee Carter. Will Poulter is one of the finest screen actors around. I I could watch Will Poulter in anything. I absolutely love him. I think he's really really great, and he gives a hundred and ten percent. And so I think what. What doesn't work is I think that in the end, the meshing of the songs and the drama doesn't quite feel organic enough. And it's got an odd sort of where is this going feel, which you describe rightly as hypnotic at times. But also I think at times it's kind of frustrating because it never actually quite takes off. It never actually quite takes flight. But there are some, you know, very good performances in it. Naomi Aki, we're going to see uh, in the not-too-distant future as Whitney Houston. Um, but I was really reminded of that thing of listening to Step 2 by Shiwadi Wadi. I'm not embarrassed. It was the first band I ever saw live. And just listening to this album of songs and thinking, oh, I'll build, I'll, I should write a narrative around that, which, of course, I didn't do because I have no talent for creation. That's why I would never make a film. That's why I would never make it. Because, and if, if I did, you wouldn't want to see it. In the case of this, they have done. And it's ambitious. I love musicals. I've got a real soft spot for musicals. And I'm always happy to see somebody go, you know, why not? 
let's do something with the fact that we have the, you know, it, it's a low budget film, we can take risks and let's just not be boring. And I think that although this doesn't work and it doesn't hang together, it, it's kind of, it's good to see somebody thinking, well, why not? You know, why not? What are your feeling? Yes, uh, uh, pretty much, yes, the same. Um, I did, there's lots to admire. I particularly like the opening 10 minutes and they, they do this song, Barleycorn. Yes. Which is an old folk thing, really, but uh, with a lot of electronica in there and I've still got that tune going through my head at the moment. Yeah. So, the songs are oddly haunting, yeah, yeah. but, but it, I'm just not sure that they're interwoven well enough with the story. But, but well worth checking out, I would say. Yeah, and and as I said, I would always rather see somebody aim high and fall than just go. Let's just do two people in a cafe. That movie is the score. Um, coming up after a, a very short break, everyone's favourite uh, trip of the week as we enter the laughter lift. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, hello there, Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed. Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker, and this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. You know, it's I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days. And everything seems to move at 100 miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kermode. Right, welcome back. And here we go. It's laughter lift time. Sort of a special edition, really, because last week we asked you for your highfalutin jokes that might make The Economist. Uh 
okay, and they have been flooding in. So let's go to the very top floor, please, with this week's Laugh to Lip. Rick Harris says, I mean, this is a written joke, but I have to perform it. Okay. There are 10 types of people, those who understand binary and those who don't. So... Really, this has to be there are one zero. Oh, I see. Fine, fine. Those are then rolling in the aisles is the number ten. One zero in binary is the number two, two. in the standard decimals. Anyway, yeah. Howard from Raucous Records says, "I told my psychiatrist that I have a fear of overly engineered buildings. It turns out I have a complex, complex, complex." <laughs> this one came in. I do like this one. Who started the pedants' revolt? Answer: Which Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> Simon Lawrence says there are two types of people in the world those who can extrapolate from incomplete data Peter in Glasgow says why did the Italian joke cross the road I don't know because a hit had just a meta the chicken the key is that a dodgy Italian accent saying met you may well say meta and as Mark will know if something is meta, meta, it is self-referential, so therefore the use of the word meta, meta. here allows the joke to interact yeah. with itself. Which Tyler? Yes. What Tyler was the guy who started the, the Peasants' Revolt? Which Tyler? So therefore, which Tyler is the... Yeah. What Tyler? Right. And a couple of literary ones to finish. Uh, my friend is opening... Uh, this is David Fitzgerald. Uh, my friend is opening a bookstore to tell German philosophy... T to sell German philosophy texts. I told him it wouldn't work. It's... Too much of a Nietzsche market. Okay. And... Which Tyler? Which Tyler? What Tyler? Tim writes, Did you know Alexander Solzhenitsyn has just written a cookbook? I understand one of the more popular recipes is goulash archipelago. Okay. And under... They went down... Slightly absolutely, Yes. They went down fantastically well. Um, over the weekend, uh, my mum's not very well, and so we visited her in hospital, and I said to child three, can, can you send me a joke? which will make Granny laugh. Yes. And he sent me this, okay? Okay. This is a conversation between Julius Caesar and Brutus. Okay. Brutus says, uh, how do you get to Dover? Julius Caesar says, A2, Brute. Very good. Very good. Yeah, all right, well. And can I say, that's a very child three joke. Is it child three or child two? Child three. Child three, yes, thank you. One. That was a very child three Anyway, joke. thank you very much. So if you, uh, highfalutin jokes, I, I like them. They're very good. Can I say, one of the things that that proves is that because I laughed at Witch Tyler, but I didn't get it. Yes. What it proves is that there is something in the rhythm or the music of jokes that makes you laugh no matter what. It's da -da 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 -da. no matter what Tyler. Da -da, no matter what Tyler. Yeah. Da -da 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 -dum. And th th I just think it's particularly fascinating that a joke. It, there is something about the music of the construction of a joke, even when you're murdering them. Even if it's about a German theoretical physicist, <laughs> that's right. where there is that's just still, silence. I don't know why I laughed, because I didn't get it. Correspondence at kermanameo.com. Uh, let's uh, get a review underway. Okay, so new film out uh, called See How They Run, which is a kind of goofy caper set around uh, 100 performance of The Mousetrap, which, as you know, is the longest-running play in Evs for mm -hmm. Evs. Um, it's a whodunit the mousetrap that famously ends with the audience being told well now you know who done it you are party to murder yeah, so it's daniel craig isn't it you must never you must never this <laughs> is daniel craig who did it okay fine um i uh, i took child two child one wanted to go and see the mousetrap and child two came along rather begrudgingly fairly recently well i mean a few years ago and then child two got swept up in it and then the play plays out it's very very old-fashioned you know sort of uh, lovingly old-fashioned and then at the end of it 
the person goes, and I say that it was so-and-so, and child two completely involuntarily went, no, <laughs> really loudly, which right. I think must be great that after all these years, yeah. they're still performing to people who don't know who done it. So, um, you know, Agatha Christie, the mousetrap began life as a radio play, which apparently drew inspiration from a real-life scandal broadcast in 47. Then there was a short story that Agatha Christie said should not be published whilst the play is still running in the West End. So in the UK, that short story still hasn't been published and apparently has been published in the US. This is set in the 50s. An American producer has come to London to get a film of The Mousetrap off the ground. There is an obnoxious director played by Adrian Brody who thinks that all whodunits are just nonsense. And uh, he he, he, he wants to change it. He wants a brutal murder in the opening pages. He wants it to end with a shootout and explosion. Instead, what happens is at the party celebrating the performance, he gets into a fight with the leading man, Richard Attenborough, um, played by Harris Dickinson, you know, who, who was genuinely there, and winds up murdered. He says, you know, all these who've done it are the same. In the first five minutes, the most obnoxious character gets bumped off. And then he gets bumped off. That's a good joke. Sam Rock, it's a very good joke. Sam Rockwell is the disheveled Inspector Stoppard, who is assigned to the case and uh, and discovers that everybody had a motive, like with the mousetrap, everybody has a reason, everybody has a motive. And Saoirse Ronan is Constable Stalker, who is this very, very keen uh, PC who loves theatre but hasn't been to see the mousetrap but would love to and finds herself assigned to the case. Here's a clip. I understand you uh, met WPC Stalker last night. I did, yes. Constable. Inspector. A very capable officer. Or at least she will be once she gets the proper instruction. Sorry, sir, I'm not sure I... uh, You you don't mean you want me to... Yes, I do. I'd like you to show her the ropes. I'm hoping some of her enthusiasm for police work might rub off on you. But the uh, bullets, sir, is that why? This is not a debate, Stoppard. I have a reputation as a moderniser. I have to be seen to keep it up. I have said in public that I think women are the future of the force. Absolutely, sir. Uh, I agree. But we're not looking for stolen sweets or sweets. A, a lost bleeding bicycle. This is a murder investigation and she is inexperienced. So obviously what's going to happen is, you know, they're going to be uh, paired up. She writes everything down in, the no- in a notebook, including being told not to write everything down in a notebook Excellent. and not to jump to conclusions. Um, I went into this not knowing anything about it, but having just somebody told me the premise. And I thought, well, that sounds, you know, creaky as anything. And then I found myself, it's that lovely thing when you're three minutes into it and you start laughing and you go, oh, this is actually really good. Directed by Tom George from a very funny script by Mark Chappell. Chappell? Chappell? Has extensive TV credits. Um, the performances are great fun. Saoirse Ronan is just terrific. I mean, she is just really, really funny and demonstrates she's got you know really great uh, comic chops. It is a really good cast. Um, uh, David E. Yellowow as the screenwriter, who's <laughs> this lovely... Lots of self-referential gags about flashbacks. I hate flashbacks during a flashback. You know, the next thing you know, there'll be a thing which says three weeks later, cut to three weeks later. There's a very nice kind of the way in which they do the extended gag about who done it, about in which it is about who done it. Sounds like, well, that will only last for a five or ten minute sketch, but somehow they managed to make it last the whole length of the movie. Um it's self-referential, but it's also open enough that if you don't know anything about the mousetrap, you will understand it. It also doesn't spoil the mousetrap, which is pretty clever, considering that you'd kind of think that that's what would have to happen. Honestly, 
I, it was a treat. I went in with my slightly grumpy Monday morning face on, thinking I don't know anything about this, but I've got very, very low expectations. Three minutes in, started laughing, came out, and that thing, but everyone in the foyer going, well, that was a that was an absolutely unexpected joy. It was really funny. Excellent. We need more of that. We need Very more good. of that. Uh, correspondence at kerbinomeo.com. Once you've seen it, uh, let us know what you think. Quick bit of what's on now. This is where you email us a, a voice note about your festival or special screening from wherever you are in the world. Again, correspondence at kerbinomeo.com. This week, we start with Joe. Hello, Simon and Mark. This is Joe from the Charlton and Woolwich Free Film Festival, which starts on the 10th of September. Our films include... Summer of Soul, The Apartment, Pride, Dad's Army from 1971, Then Barbara Met Allen and Dune. Please visit freefilmfestivals.org and click on Explore Our Festivals for more. Hi, Sal here from Cinema Under the Stairs, Oxford's monthly underground cinema. This October, we return with our Hover Film Festival, Shoptoberfest. Six movies, six venues, over six nights. We've got amazing speakers from the Hover community, our magical El Gordo raffle, and fantastic pubs to meet up and make new friends. Shoptoberfest runs from Sunday the 9th to Friday the 14th of October. Tickets have just gone on sale, and you can purchase them from cinemaunderthestairs.com. Thank you. Fantastic delivery, Sal. Thank you. He had a script. He, he, he had a boom, 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 stopwatch. Boom, boom. He knew how long he needed to get that all uh, in for. So, Sal and Joe, thank you very much. Send your 20-second audio trailer about your event uh, anywhere in the world to correspondence at conoa.com. A couple of weeks up front will be nice. We'll give you a shout-out, or obviously you give yourself a shout-out. Uh, see how they run. So we've done that, and that sounds fun. What else is out there? Bodies, 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 which is a black horror comedy from the A24 stable, directed by Helena Rain. Does the A24 go to Dover? It does go to Dover, yeah, yeah. Simon Poole. Um, Making her English language uh, feature debut as director. Written by Sarah DeLapp, who wrote uh, the play The Wolves, credited to a story from Kristen Rapinion, who wrote the original spec script that was then rewritten. So Amanda Stenberg is Sophie, a rich young woman who travels with her Eastern European lover B, uh, Maria Baklova, to a to a hurricane party. There's a hurricane coming in, so they were going to a party while the hurricane happens at a mansion owned by her childhood friend David, played by Pete Davidson. Um as soon as she gets there, jagged edges of everyone's relationships emerge. There is petty fight, social one-upmanship, all fueled by alcohol, drugs, and spoiled narcissism. In particular, David is cross that podcaster Alice has turned up with her hot boyfriend, Greg, who he doesn't think is hot. Here's a clip. But he's, like, not hot. You know what I mean? He's like, like, your mom would be like, oh, he's hot. Not your mom. I mean moms in general. Moms that have been married for, like, 10, 15 years and they see, like, him going out of a Starbucks. Alice got to bring someone without telling anyone. So you do read the chat. Why is everyone so obsessed with the chat? Like, you're here, I'm here, we're here together, right? Why are we worrying about the chat when we could just live in the moment? Yeah, it's because you went to rehab and you're not on drugs. So, like, everything's like, ooh, why don't we just all be cool, man? And that's what they're all like. They suggest a murder in the dark style game called Bodies, 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 which we are told always ends in tears. And so why do it? Well, because they're those kind of people uh-huh. and very annoying kind of people. So it starts and it does end in tears. And the next thing is someone's throat gets slashed and game gets real. This is another example of a low-budget film that's doing very well. It's taken 10 million the last time I looked. Um, it's drawn comparison with things like uh, Jennifer's Body and Scream, you know, postmodern satirical horrors. It's, I thought it was actually really well done. The, the reason it works is they're a very, very irritating group of people who have all got these kind of, you know, these interrelational, as I said, jagged edges, which are which are all kind of very, very spiky. And 
as everything starts to fall apart, their spikiness and their desire to just sort of rip into each other becomes more and more accentuated. But while that's happening, while the bodies, bodies, bodies start to pile up, I mean, funnily enough, in a way, you can see this as a whodunit, as a kind of companion piece to see how they run, because, you know, there's a murder, an unlikable person gets killed at the very, very beginning, everyone else is holed up in house, and then we have to decide which person was doing it. There's even a power cut. Um, but what makes it work is that you believe that the monstrousness is the people's relationship. I mean, there are, there is a particularly funny scene in which they all start having a huge verbal slanging match with each other over a dead body, over whether or not somebody's fam somebody's parents are indeed upper middle class. They're professors. Yes, but they taught at a public... It, it's got ve a very sharp script. The performances are very well done. You do believe that these characters are as annoying as they appear to be. Makes very smart use of a confined location. Cinematography does that thing, which is kind of, you know, you're, you're there and it's kind of becomes weirdly urgent. So it's funny and it's dark and it's got a very sort of, it's got a kind of killer wit to it. And I, having begun it thinking, these people are really, really, really annoying. The smart thing is that the film understands that that's the point and that's also the thing that's driving the plot. And uh, I thought it was really good fun. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Now, that's the end of take one. Uh, production management and general all-round stuff was Lily Hambling. Cameras by Teddy Riley. Videos on our Tip Top YouTube channel by Ryan O'Meara. Johnny Socials was Jonathan Imieri. Studio engineer, Josh Gibbs. Flynn Rodham is the assistant producer. Hannah Talbot is the producer. Guest research is Sophie Ivan. And the redactor was Simon Poole, of course. Mark, what is your movie of the week? See how they run. Excellent. Uh, look forward to that. Next week, we're going to say uh, hello to the star of Coffee, Foxy Brown, Scream, Blackula Scream, and the titular character in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. She's, of course, Pam Greer. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Extra takes available on Monday. Mark, you were very fine today. And so were you, Simon. And thanks again for the for the bed and the coffee. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. Just don't make... Uh, no, okay. Don't make a habit of it. You can, you can, <laughs> I have made a habit. You have made like a habit. Like a nun, I have indeed made a habit of it. <laughs>